Thank you for joining us today for the podcast ministry of Unity Point Church. We're located at 124 Amerson Street in Anniston, Alabama. We hope that you'll join us very soon and be a part of our fellowship. We'd love to have you. Our three core values are Christ, community, and connections, and we try to find all three every time we come together. We believe that you're going to be both blessed and challenged by the message today, so let's dive right in. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be turning with me to Hebrews chapter 6. That's where we are as we're walking through Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 6. If you're there, say amen. Amen. Ooh. Give you one more shot. I hear pages still turning. That's awesome. If you're there, say amen. amen. Yeah, okay. Hebrews chapter 6. Here we go. Therefore, leaving the elementary message about the Messiah, let us go on to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it's impossible to renew repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, became companions with the Holy Spirit, tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. For ground that has drunk the rain that has often fallen on it and that produces vegetation useful to those it is cultivated for receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it's worthless and about to be cursed and will be burned at the end. Even though we're speaking this way, dear friends, in your case, we're confident of the better things connected with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your love or your work and the love you showed for his name when you served the saints and you continue to serve them. Now we want each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the final realization of your hope so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For men swear something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute, because God wanted to show his unchanging purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. He guaranteed it with an oath, so that through two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure, It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray over the word. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for who you are and what you have done and what you are doing and what you will do. And God, we're thankful for all of these things for you have been gracious to us. You are the God of this city. You're the God of this community. You're the God of this people. You're the God of this nation. Sometimes we don't proclaim you through our lives as being our God. 
in this nation. But you are the God of all nations. You're not America's God. You're the God of all creation. And so, Father, I just pray and believe that greater things are yet to come. Not because of us, not because of any individuals, not because of any talents, abilities, any of those things, God. Simply because you are building your kingdom and you so love the world that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die. So whosoever believed didn't have to perish but could have everlasting life. And so God, I pray that you will help us today as we go through what's really a portion of this is a difficult Difficult to understand. It creates a lot of controversy in the church world. But God, we're just going to try to focus in on you and receive from your word today. Holy Spirit, open up and enlighten the word into our hearts, our minds. Open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds so that we can receive. We just pray and believe this in Jesus' name. And the church together said, Amen, amen, amen. amen. So this, there is a portion of this that is a... Fairly controversial, um, heavily debated um, idea in the faith community. community. And I, ironically, some years ago, I, I had a lot of conversations with different people on different sides of this about the passage, about other related passages. And um, but we'll we'll get to some of that a little further. But first, I want us to get and understand the initial encouragement that the author is giving here in Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, by the way, I should always remind you that you can pull up on the church app, follow along, fill in some blanks, all right? Because there you go. Alan's got it up right there. Because I will give you the actual statement so that you can fill in the blanks while we're going. Uh, you can always go back and, uh, and uh, do that later as well. So the first and the initial encouragement and, and challenge that the author gives us is really summed up as this, mature in your faith. You need to mature in your faith. And you've got to remember, when we ended last week, we ended chapter 5 in Hebrews, and that was with the author telling us and, and telling those initial readers that they were still on milk when they should be on meatier things of the Word. He went on to tell them then their spiritual lives, they should be teachers at this point instead of still needing to be taught the basics over and over again. And so he begins chapter 6 with that transitional word where he says, therefore. So he's saying because of the fact that you should be more advanced than you are right now, because of the fact that you should be more prepared, that you should be spiritually mature at this point, he says then again, Let's be mature. Let's be mature in our faith. What are the kind of folks that he's talking to? He's not talking to folks that, that just got saved a month ago or two months ago or three months ago. He's talking about people that had been around church. They had been involved in church. They had been saying that they were a follower of Christ for a long period of time. And he says, if you are, then you should be mature by now. You should be growing. You should be uh, wiser about the things of God because you've had time. You've had time to engage in those things. He says, so it's time to go on to maturity. In fact, he says, you need to get settled on the foundational things there. He says, leave the elementary message. I was reading one commentary, and he literally said, he said, get past the ABCs. You know, get past the ABCs. 
and move on to stuff that's more important. You know, the Bible talks about that there are mysteries about God. And sometimes we're not even to the mystery because we're still doing A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, right? I'm so glad that God loves me. I don't know. I'm making that up as I go, right? <laughs> but he said, uh, don't lay again the foundations, and he's going to go into some stuff. So how do we accomplish becoming more mature in the faith? Well, it's, it's, there's three things that happen. One is we do so by hearing the Word, then by receiving the Word, and then acting on the Word. If you stop at any point before you get to the third one, then it's not real effective, right? You can hear the Word, but don't do anything with it. You don't even receive it. And if we had time and we could really just, you know, spend a couple hours, which we're not going to do, we would really talk about even the parable of the soil. Because uh, we hear that called the parable of the sower. It's really not. The sower's the same in all of that. The seed's the same in all that. It's the soils that are different in that process where he talks about it falls on stony ground, falls on good ground, falls on other stuff. The idea is that you have to not only hear the word, but you have to receive the word. Then after you receive it, you've got to act on it. You've got to do something with what it says to do or how it says to act or how it says we ought to live. And I'm going to tell you that when you start applying and trying to exercise the Word of God, that's going to take you out of a comfort zone. It's going to take you out. Of, you don't grow if you're in your comfort zone. Quite honestly, when we stay just around the same group of people that we've always been around, and we hang out with folks just like us, and we do the same things every day, day in and day out, life gets mundane, life gets boring, and you are not really challenged. It doesn't matter whether it's sports, whether it's a hobby that you have, spiritual life, anything like that, music, whatever it is, if you don't challenge yourself to get outside of a comfort zone, you will not grow. It'll be stagnant. It's like, it's like one of these ponds that's on the side of the road that has nothing flowing in except rainwater, and there's definitely nothing flowing out, and it just gets stagnant across the whole thing because there's not movement. There's not a little bit of turbulence there that happens. I can tell you, you know, if you haven't flown here recently, and I know, uh, I guarantee you Namus prayer life got really good when he was on the plane going to Houston because he, he's not excited about flying. And I've, I don't know if you've ever been on one of those little uh, crop dusters or, you know, pretty much, or, you know, puddle jumpers, one of those little prop planes or something. You ever get on one of those where, you know, you're kind of like in the seat by yourself on the side, there's not like somebody beside you, and all of a sudden that thing drops like a, you know, something at six flags, and your stomach comes out your right ear, you know, and all that. But boy, you'll, you'll get close to God, not because of height. Right? You'll be, oh, dear Jesus. <laughs> There's people on the plane that they don't even believe in God. They'll start praying. They'll just start, if you're there, save us. They're just hoping that somebody on the plane is, is living right. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm always praying. I'm like, God, don't let there be a Jonah on this plane. <laughs> don't let us go down because of them. <laughs> you got to get out of that, out of that comfort zone. The author ends up listing six things, six things that these believers were were wrestling with, and we're just going to very quickly touch on them to get to the next portion. The first two is he talks about repentance and faith. He talks about repentance from dead works and faith in God. These, These two are at the initiation of faith, because when you're coming to Jesus Christ, there should be this idea of repentance and faith. They're Godward. 
I put in the notes there for you out of a commentary that I read. It says, to repent means to change one's mind. It is not simply a bad feeling about sin, because that could be regret or remorse. It is changing one's mind about sin to the point of turning from it. Once a sinner has repented, and you can look at Acts 5.31 and Acts 11.18 about that, then they're able to exercise faith in God, and repentance and faith go together. He says, you've got to quit having to talk about and try to figure out repentance and faith. He says, you keep having to lay this foundation that over and over. It's like somebody going in. I made a comment to somebody this week. I said, if you remember when you were in grade school, you probably had one of those projects at school where you took a coffee cup, like one of the plastic coffee cups, and you put soil in it, and you put like a pinto bean down in there or something, you know, and, you know, it's supposed to grow and, and all that stuff, you know. And, uh, and, and one of the things that, that people will do, you know, if you've ever been around somebody like this, a kid that wants to go in and dig it up every day, right? I don't see, we got to see. I mean, put more water on it. Put more tomorrow. going to come in, dig the thing back up again, you know. It's not growing. Teacher, you know. <laughs> Johnny, <laughs> and Johnny's like, yes, Lord, there's so many like that. <laughs> He's saying, hey, you know what? Spiritually, you can't be that way. It can't be that you just constantly have to keep going back to the initial things over and over and over again. He says, you've got to find those and let them be a foundation and build on that, not tear the foundation up every day. You've got to stop doing it. And the idea of repentance and faith was part of that. The second two was baptism and laying on of hands. These two are related to your connection to the local assembly of believers. The New Testament practice was pretty simple. Once a person repented and trusted in Christ and became baptized, and then they would become part of the local church. That was just, it wasn't that they were having to command it per se. That's what was expected. It was, hey, you come to know Jesus, you want to be part of his family, you follow him in baptism, and then you will go and you'll become part of the local expression of the body of Christ. It's just what you did because that was part of being in the family of God. The idea about laying on of hands was uh, related to the idea of communal prayer. You know, the Bible talks about, it says, if any among you is sick, you know, let them call upon the elders of the church and they'll anoint them with oil. You got to kind of, you got to kind of put some hands on somebody if you're going to anoint with oil. And it says, and they'll pray, and if, the, you know, if they've committed any sin, right, that it'll be forgiven. The prayer of faith will save the sick, all that stuff. This idea says, hey, no, no sense in continuing to have them talk about this. They would pray and lay hands on people to impart blessings. Right? Well, you know, if we send somebody to Africa or if we send somebody on a missions trip or something like that, you, you come together and you lay hands and you pray in order to impart blessing. Which, by the way, for a lot of you fathers, you need to read some, some scripture and, and understand that the Bible talks about your ability very specifically uh, in the home to be able to impart blessing onto, onto your children. Also, they would use this for setting a person apart for ministry. And then the fifth and sixth items that he lists there talks about the resurrection of the dead and final judgment. People were still struggling with the idea of how was the resurrection of the dead going to happen? When was it going to happen? What was the final judgment going to look like? Those things are related to the future. People got hung up about focusing on future events. And I want to tell you, that still happens today. 
There's a lot of people, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't, you know, have an interest in trying to understand future events, eschatology, if you want to know the technical term for it and things like that. But there's some people, they'll spend their entire time just trying to study on end time events and things like that. And it's great to know, but I would challenge you to understand this. Our mission is never any different whether you think Jesus is coming back today in a month, in a year, in 10 years, or 100 years. Our mission is not any different. When I hear people say, oh, as you kind of see the, what's going on in society and the signs of the times, we've got to just get more about God's work. We should have been more about God's work whether you saw the signs of the times or not. Right? Because the, the reality is that's kind of like saying, well, you know what? I had the cure for cancer, but nobody in my family had had it. And so when somebody in my family got it, I went, whoa, we probably should share this. There's a world around us that's struggling for peace and for hope and for direction in their lives. There, there's young people that are wrestling with insecurity, the, all the things, the challenges are going on. There's adults that are wrestling with all of that stuff. And we know the answer. We know the answer is Jesus. We know that He's the Prince of Peace. We know that He's the Comforter. We know all the things that He is. We shouldn't get about it because it looks like that. Oh, hey, look what's happening in the news. No, just look at the reality of what's happening in people's lives, and we should be about doing the work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Always should be a burning passion because it's what Jesus commissioned us to do. You and I only have X amount of time. And in our lives, in us coming to Christ, He has given us a great commission. And so we ought to be about that. We ought to be about that every day. But finally, we get into the more controversial passage. And so we've got to ask the question, what does the author mean when he refers to it being impossible to renew to repentance? Those who were once enlightened and who tasted the heavenly gift became companions with the Holy Spirit and yet have fallen away. And I always tell you guys, this is why so many people don't preach in an expository fashion because they don't want to have to go from the front of the book to the back of the book and talk about the difficult subjects. It's easier just to skip them and then you can just talk about something else and everybody goes, whoa, nice sermon, awesome, you know, there's nothing controversial, any of that kind of stuff. So I'll just give you, you know, the two different sides in general when it comes to a verse like this. Some people would tell you that this passage is in reference to people having to receive salvation and then losing their salvation. Others would tell you that this is people who were never saved, but who closely aligned with the people of God, who maybe worked within the church, agreed superficially with the ideas and teachings, but were never truly changed in their heart. And I do have enough time to be able to dig that far in to, um, to get the comprehensive uh, discussion of both of those ideas enough. But I do want to get into them enough to uh, make you think and compare scriptures. And you do need to understand that the reality is that when you hear either, either camp, either belief system talk about this, they use the same scriptures. They use the same... The, the, the same, and they will give you a different, a different perspective on both. Uh, so I'm sorry that that doesn't make it any easier for you. You know, I know my job's supposed to be to make it easier for everybody. You know, that's part of, part of my job. Um, 
Sorry. Just go ahead and get that one out there. Uh, I am going to try to provide you with a good overarching rule of thumb that transcends either belief structure because uh, it's so easy, depending on what you've been taught, uh, to, to just accept and to go with that and then never really think through the challenges of uh, a, a, a statement of belief that's different than that. All right? And I think that's the hardest thing because, you know what, we're all in the same family. I heard somebody tell me this week I was, uh, I was at a truck store and a guy made a comment to me about uh, a situation. And I was sharing with him about us being given this, this property. I had not seen this gentleman since, uh, since I was in school at Faith. And, and he began to tell me about another situation. He said, yeah, he said, but they pulled back because their denomination said, well, we want to keep it within the denomination, even though they weren't effectively you know, using it or whatever. And, and he said, I thought to myself, said, hey, we're all on the same team. I said, there you go. There you go. But it's important that we recognize that and we have some conversations with people that don't always agree with us, but we know that, that their faith is sincere. So let's talk about the idea of whether somebody can be saved and then lose their salvation or walk away from their salvation. So... In order, before we just dive into the two concepts there, I, I think we've got to step back and we've got to understand what we believe about salvation. We've got to understand salvation itself. And most importantly, we've got to view how God sees salvation versus how we see salvation. And this is really important because this has jacked up a lot of people, I'm just going to tell you. On both sides, both sides of, of the belief system has jacked people up. I don't know any better term to give you than it's jack people up. Um, so the first thing I want you to understand is salvation is not a contract. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Salvation is not a contract. It is a covenant. Salvation involves us completely surrendering all authority over our own lives. And I'm afraid that we've convinced people to believe that salvation is almost a moment-by-moment decision as, you know, we've often referred to it. I refer to it even at times. I will say, hey, you need to make a decision about receiving Christ because I believe that's a legitimate uh, process of making a decision. And the reason that I, that I believe that is, is because when you present the gospel and it is there, and if God is working on someone's heart or if they feel, they've got to make a decision. You've, you've, you've been presented with something. You've got to decide. That's why, you know, we, we used to sing, just uh, back when I was a kid, we would sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. Anybody remember there's, a, there's, a, there's an ending part of this song, which we're going to use in talking about this. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. Anybody know the next line? No turning back. No turning back. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. So I've used the phraseology of saying, hey, you know, you need to make a decision tonight. You need to decide to follow Jesus. The problem is, is if we don't understand what happens when you decide to follow Jesus. What does that mean? What does that look like? Our society has led us to believe that marriage is a contract and God intended it as a covenant. 
And this covenant relationship of marriage is actually what God uses throughout the Bible to illustrate the relationship of Jesus Christ to the believers who make up the universal church. He talks about that Jesus will be the bridegroom and that the church will be the bride. And, and, and this is important to understand because society... We've got to recognize that Satan is our enemy, wants to destroy and distort the definitions and the understanding of anything that is used by God. And marriage is one of those. So the enemy wants us to think of marriage as a contract instead of a covenant because God uses that to refer to Christ being connected to the church. And if the enemy can convince us that marriage is a contract. And so what is a contract? A contract is something that before it ever takes place, you put language in it that tells how we break up. It says, here's what's going to happen. Here are the penalties if we don't keep the contract. Contracts begin with an idea of that there could be somebody failing to fulfill the contract. Covenants are actually different. Covenants, in the biblical sense, is where both parties agree to hold up their end regardless of whether the other party holds up their end or not. That messes with us a little bit because we go, wait just a minute. We're in a litigious society. In other we're in a litigious society. I mean, we will sue people like left and right, you know? And so that's why that you see what people go, hey, injured, injured marriage, 99 bucks, right? Used to be 99 bucks. You'd see it advertised. You'd see it on signs on the side of the road. You know, need a divorce, $99, you know, that type of thing. Hey, it was cheap. God, you know, says, hey, that's not what I'm after. I'm not after this. In fact, if you wanted to take the time to go read the story about Gomer, how would you like to marry a woman named Gomer? <laughs> Just doesn't even sound, you know, because you're thinking Gomer Pyle, you know, or whatever. But, but you, you should go read that, right? He, he tells a prophet, side note, he tells a prophet to marry a lady who is unfaithful, who's, who's literally a prostitute. And, and she repeatedly leaves him, and he has to go and buy her out of bondage over and over again. You need, to, you need to go read that and understand why does God even put that there? And he talks about it. He says, Israel, this is you. This is you guys. You constantly are straying away, and I'm over here, and I am just bringing you back and bringing you back and bringing you back. Why would, wouldn't you hate to be that prophet? God doesn't tell you to marry a supermodel. He doesn't tell you to marry, you know, this, this great, you know, good in the kitchen, you know, all that kind of stuff. No, he tells you to marry somebody who sleeps around. Because he's going to use your marriage to illustrate his faithfulness. Hmm. I want to give you some scripture in case you're going, I don't know about, you know, where are you going with this? This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, 
He will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. By the way, did you pick up on that? He, he said something powerful there. He said that if we endure, no turning back, no turning back. This concept just doesn't make sense. But it is critical for us in understanding God, and it's the foundation of understanding. When we say amazing grace, the reason it is amazing grace is because it doesn't make sense to us. It's not amazing because we're like, you yeah, know, that's pretty cool. That's, that's a little better than, you know, the grace that I would give somebody. No, it is amazing because it makes no sense to us. Why would God be faithful even when we are not? Here's something critical to think about and, and something that I've long considered. You hang with me in case you're getting worried. The Bible's clear that there are sins of commission. Does anybody know what commission is? Means means what? You committed those, right? You, you knew to do. By the way, the Bible says that him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, it's sin. Oh, man, that one's tough. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he says, so there's sins of commission. We did something wrong. We did so knowingly. I know that I should not do what Dennis said, you know, and tell somebody riding down the road that they're number one, which I don't do in case anybody was wondering. But, you know, if you knew that, and you do, you do now, I just told you, you know, it's not right to tell them they're number one. You know, or to even wave and think in your brain, that's a whole flock of them, right? You know, some of y'all catch that later. That'll, that'll hit some of y'all later. You'll be like, whoa, it's like the bird. It's flock. Okay, all right. It's kitten more of you. You're, you're, you're getting there. But we also have sins of omission where there's something that we should have done and we didn't do. Can you imagine? Maybe you can because maybe you're struggling with this, but can you imagine what your spiritual would be like if you had to live in constant fear? That, oh my goodness, did, did, uh, did I forget to do this? Did I forget to do that? Uh, man, that's, I, that's a sin. Am I, am I facing to die and go to hell because, because I, I, I forgot this? Or, or I should have taken the time to witness to that person and I didn't. Oh my goodness, I'm at work now. I can't do What do I do? I, I can't die before, I, before we get off work so that I can, I can reach out to them because I'm, I'm going to split hell wide open because I, I didn't do this, you know? What if you were supposed to witness to somebody at the gas station this morning and you didn't because you were in a hurry, you were, you know, whatever, and, hey, oh, my goodness, you know, what, I, what's going to happen? What's, what's spiritually going to happen? I've often asked people uh, at times, uh, because I, I love engaging with people that uh, doesn't matter which side they're on, I, I'll, I'll stay over here and won't, won't commit until I can uh, discuss it with all of them, you know, just so I can see where they are and if people can explain what they really believe. And you ask somebody, say, well, well what all, how much do you have to do to lose your salvation? How far do you have to go? How many times? How many times without repenting? How big does it have to be? What, what is it? See, the focus is wrong. The focus is wrong when we start talking about this. I, I, don't, I don't ask people those questions because you never do get an answer. There, there never is an answer. Well, I'm not really sure, but you can go too far. I don't try to understand. I'm not trying to understand the parameter. I, I want to understand the, the difference in serving God out of fear 
which the Bible says God did not give us a spirit of, and in serving God because we love Him and because that we adore Him and because that we are have a, an allegiance to Him and go, God, I want to serve You. I want to do better in my life, not because I am afraid. Even though the, I understand the Bible says that the fear of God, which is respect, and it's and it's all that is the beginning of, of wisdom. It's not that type of thing. It is this understanding that I want to serve God because I love Him, not because that I'm afraid. Because God has not given you a spirit of fear, the Word says, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So then people question whether, well, if that's if that were to be the case, that you're saying, hey, it's not this issue of you running over here and losing your salvation all the time, then the only other option they believe is, well, then you just say a prayer, and then it doesn't matter how you live after that. Because you prayed a prayer, and you got saved, and then you can just live however you want. Those are not the only two options. Because that option is straight out of the pits of hell, I'm just going to tell you. It's a, it makes a mockery of God's grace. It makes a mockery of the salvation that Jesus Christ paid for us to go. Oh, yeah, you know, you were nine years old. and not saying you can't get saved when you're nine, but you were nine years old, and all your friends went down at VBS, and so you went down too, and, and the guy said, hey, do you want to receive Jesus? And you said, yes, I do, and, you know, because all your friends were going, yes, and they were crying, and you thought, I should cry too, and y'all know this stuff happened, you know? And, and so... Then you lived like the devil himself, you know, for the next 20 years, you know. You did everything you could off. You didn't get saved. So, oh, but I prayed the prayer. See, that's not, salvation is not about praying a prayer. If that was it, we'd just run around and get everybody to, hey, repeat this prayer. Although that's what we do a lot if we're not careful. Just repeat this prayer after me. If you said that prayer, you got saved. That's not true. That's not true. The Bible doesn't say if you will repeat this prayer that you get saved. It's not it at all. We're going we're gonna to see some scripture about that. That concept that, hey, you just pray a prayer at some point and then it doesn't matter because you're saved and it doesn't matter how you live, you can do whatever. Then, and nobody won't, ever wants to say it that way. Nobody wants to say it that way. But they need to explain what the truth is. So they'll run, run out there and, you know, people go, oh, you know, it just doesn't matter. I mean, they did like this and, you know, 50 years ago they prayed a prayer. Well, we'll talk about whether their life changed or not. The salvation covenant includes full surrender. And I, I want to be really clear. You did not surrender to Christ if there's not a change in your life. I'm not talking about you became perfect the moment that you prayed that prayer and meant it sincerely out of your heart. It's like Bird was talking about, and, and we, we heard and, and, and shared that when we were uh, in Africa. It's, it's the idea of you had heard, you had heard, you had heard with your ear, but then you finally heard with your heart. And y'all understand what that means. It means it goes from being something that you heard, you could repeat, to something you knew and felt and believed, and it changed you. You know that, that difference between when you look at a, and, and I'm going to talk to this side so that, so that the, the young people won't get, get upset at me. You know how when we, were, when we were teenagers and we got so dramatic about that, I love her. <laughs> y'all know, y'all know what I'm saying. I love her. Oh, I love, I love him. I know I never said that. Now, you know, I would, you know, that would be the girls. The girls would be saying, you know, I love him so much, you know, whatever. But, but you know, that, oh, that's what it was. I just love him. And you, we as parents today, 
we're going, it's that puppy love, you know. I don't know what puppy love, puppy love, because I mean, I love my dog. I don't know what y'all, let me go puppy love. I mean, I still love my dog. I didn't quit loving my dog yesterday. I mean, but anyway. But you hear that, and people, oh, it's just puppy. But you know what we knew? Then when you finally, and you hear people then go, oh, and then you found true love. It was different, wasn't it? It was different. You felt it differently. You, you understood it differently. How many of you, uh, I, I felt this way, even though I was young, when, when our first child was born, I had heard people say, oh, when that child is born, it just changes. And I thought, that's crazy, man. I mean, you just go from this minute to that minute, and it's, and it's kind of rough, and there's all kind of, whoo, stuff going on, you know, because at our age, they let us in the room, right, you know, and there was stuff going on, and I was like, whoo, ah, you know, it was, it, yes, yes, and get out of my head, you know, no, <laughs> but man, and it was that way when Caleb was born, too, when, man, the minute, the minute that you get your hands on that child, it was like, man, I would die for them, yeah. you just couldn't understand how, how would, how would that change so fast? You don't know anything about them. First time you've ever seen them, and you're just like, I would do anything for them. Something you just knew is that you felt. See, if you didn't come to Christ and it changed you like that, it will truly, you can't tell me that the God of the universe touches your heart and it doesn't make an impact on you. To receive salvation is to turn our backs on a lifestyle of sin and embrace the person of Jesus Christ and his teaching. And so if we stop letting people simply believe that, oh, I just prayed a prayer and that did it and doesn't matter about anything else, because that means we're not understanding repentance and turning from sin. If we stopped that, we would see people enduring the faith. Because we would teach people that repentance means turning from our sin and turning to God. It's not just, hey, now I don't have to go to hell because I, you know, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. You know, turn or burn, you know, that type of thing. No. In fact, I often remind you the Bible says that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Not, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to die and go to hell. That's the side effect. It is that the God of the universe loved you so much that he wants to have this relationship with you. God made this pattern clear all the way from the Old Testament. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 says this, If I close the sky so there's no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, if I send pestilence on my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. I want to give you some basic scriptures about repentance. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the good news of God, and this is what he preached. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Repent and believe. Luke chapter 15, verses 4 through 10. What man among you who has 100 sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? 
When he's found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her women friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. It's not just who believes but who repents? Because that repentance says, I've been going this direction, and that's the wrong direction. I've been going away from God. And so I repent. I stop. I recognize I'm going the wrong direction. I turn from that, and I turn to God. He also said to them, this is what is written, the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem, Luke 24. Acts 3.19, Therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Acts chapter 26, verse 19 and 20. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and in all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. There's a powerful one. He's, he just said your life, the work that you do, the things you do in your life should reflect that you have repented, that you have turned from this direction and turned to God. He says, do works that are worthy of repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. Now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God wills so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. That is such a, that is such a powerful scripture. He says, it, I mean, he encapsulates the whole thing. He says, I'm not happy that you were sorry. I always told our kids, I always hated that, you know, when they would... They did something over and over and over. I know y'all's kids never did anything like that. You know, they just did the same thing over and over and over. I know that some of you as adults don't do that stuff either. You don't like to do the same thing over and over and over. But when, when, when they would do it over and over and over, and then they would go, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Y'all know how that is. Y'all know how, your, your friend does it. You know, like they trip you or something and do it like three or four times. Oh, I'm sorry. Choop, trip me. Oh, I'm sorry. I would always tell our kids when they would do something, and then they would go, oh, I'm sorry. I would say, I don't want you to be sorry. I want you to change. Right? In other words, I want you to repent. <laughs> you, you're just sorry because you got caught. <laughs> That's why you're sorry because you got caught. 
I need you to repent and change what you're doing. There in, in 2 Corinthians, he said, I'm not rejoicing because you were sorry, but because that sorriness, that sorrow led to repentance. Because he said, godly sorrow produces repentance. In other words, you can be sorry and it not be godly sorrow about your sin. What does that look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like when the Holy Spirit is trying to move on people's hearts and it's trying to draw people. And in that moment, you recognize that the things you have done are wrong and you feel sorry about that, but you're not ready to change. So you had sorrow, but it's not led to repentance yet. I was sorry, but, but it didn't lead me to change. He said, that's what I'm looking for is, because he said, godly sorrow produces repentance, and that's not going to be regretted, and it leads to salvation. But worldly sorrow, worldly grief produces death. The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay. This is 2 Peter 3 and 9. But is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. If you figured out repentance is pretty important. Because at the end of the day, if it doesn't change us, what, what testimony do we have? That's when we sing that song, Amazing Grace. That's why it's so powerful, you know. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You notice he says something changed. Something happened. I'm different because of what God did. The work of Jesus Christ in my life produced something different in me. How horrible if we would just go through life being the same, but hey, it's just, you know, at least when you die, you don't go to hell. I mean, that'd be pretty cool, right? You know, at least you didn't go to hell. But to know that God wants to change you, that God wants to shape you, that God wants to mold you. I know that God's desire is that you would repent. And not just be sorrowful, right? But actually turn from our sin. Wendy's going to move me a couple of slides ahead, a slide that looks just like this. It's got a little background on it. You know, the... Um, when you repent and you turn to Christ and you get transformed then it looks a little bit like, I want to read some scripture to you, it looks a little bit like Romans 6 and 7. In case you're wondering, you're going, man, you've read a lot of scripture today. Right. That's great. Scripture speaks to this stuff a whole lot better than me giving you an opinion or a denominational stance that somebody's put together or whatever. It's just, what does scripture say? And scripture says that God wants us to repent. And you go, well, you never kind of gave us a final statement on anything. Let me, t let me tell you what some of the final statement is going to be as we read Romans 6 and a little bit of Romans 7. Here's the final statement. Here's what I believe. If you truly repent, 
then that means that you turn from sin. That means you surrender to God. Flat out. It is not that, well, I'm kind of decided I'm going to follow him today, but maybe I won't follow him tomorrow. Maybe I won't follow him next week. Maybe I won't follow him a year from now. When we truly surrender, we give up all our rights. And we say, God, everything I have is yours. And until so we see Romans 6, he says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? See, there was a group of people that believed that because God's grace would be poured out to cover sins, that if you sinned more, I know this sounds crazy, but that if you sinned more, that grace would make its way into the world. So they're like, hey, we should go sin so that more of God's grace will show up in the world. Sounds a little nuts, but, but you know, they were trying to do, you know, one plus one equals two kind of thing. And so this is what he's addressing. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? By the way, when's the last time that you saw a dead person rise up and say, hey, uh, y'all don't eat that for dinner. That's not what y'all need to eat. Or, hey, um, you know, I want this to be happening. I want that. It doesn't happen that way. When you die, you don't make decisions anymore. You don't choose. You don't... It's over. He said... How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. For if we've been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Your old person, if you have truly received Jesus Christ, your old person is dead and gone. There is no way for you to revive them. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. Why was that? It's because when we were in sin, then we were guilty, right? And, and so sin itself as a thing could accuse us and say, you've done wrong. And we would have to say, you're right. But because that we have died, we have been baptized into the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we have died to our sins, and sin no longer has a hold on us. We're no longer enslaved by it. It no longer has the ability to accuse us. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. In other words, I don't die to sin, come back alive to sin, 
died of sin, come back alive to sin, because he said, we know that Jesus is not going to die again. It's done. Death no longer rules over him. For in light of the fact that he died, he died to sin once for all. But in light of the fact that he lives, he lives to God. So you too, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. He says, so because of that, because of the fact that you know that you've been set free from sin because of what Jesus did, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. It is a choice. He didn't say, therefore, ask Jesus to let. He said, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal. Why? Because you don't have to do what it says. Y'all know how it was when you hit, whenever it was that you moved out of the house, when you were like, you can't tell me what to do anymore. I'm living on my own. I know some of y'all did that. You need to get some of that with sin and go, hey, I'm not enslaved to you anymore. I don't have to do what you say anymore. He says, don't, therefore, do not let sin reign your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under law but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. There's your whole thing about, well, you know, just live however you want to. No, he says... Should we, should we sin because we're not under the law? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves as someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey? Either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were transferred to. And having been liberated from sin, you've become enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to moral impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free from allegiance to righteousness. So what fruit has produced them from the things you're now ashamed of? It's what, what fruit came out of that sin? For the end of those things is death, but now since you've been liberated from sin and become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. New life in Christ. What does that look like? It looks like you're changing. It looks like you're being different than you were before. Does it mean you're perfect immediately? No. Just like the first time you got on a bicycle or the first time you tried to skateboard or the first time you tried to do much of anything as a kid, it didn't go just perfectly every single thing you, you did. You had to learn. You fell down sometimes. You got back up. Your parents didn't go, man, you fell off the bicycle. You're not our kid. <laughs> right? You know, that would have been motivation. <laughs> you imagine the fear, you know, trying to learn to ride that bike. You know, man, if I fall off the bike, they're kicking me out of the house. I'm not their child. I don't have anywhere to live. I'm, I'm like five. Right? This stinks. It changes you. And so I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you right now to, I'm going to jump right into you having eyes closed and heads bowed because... 
I'm asking you to debate and think about inside your own mind right now. Because honestly, I believe the Holy Spirit has, has been speaking to you the whole time. And the question is, did you ever truly surrender your life to Christ? I'm not asking you, have you ever prayed a prayer? I'm not asking you, did you ever come down to an altar or did you go shake the pastor's hand or whatever it was, wherever you went in church? I'm asking you, have you truly given your life to Christ? Where he started changing you. Where you are wanting to grow in more and more like him every day. And if you're sitting there going, man, yeah, I mean, I prayed some prayer at VBS, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, but I hadn't cared a lick about whether I was reading the Word or ever prayed or talked to God or any of that stuff. I, not at all. It didn't matter. It didn't change anything. It, it, nothing was any different with me. Then I'm just asking you to fix that today. I'm asking you to just simply, truly give your life and your heart to Christ. Christ.